You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same And welcome to episode 286 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for this week. My name is Michael Farmer. I was once a professor of English. Now I do something else and live in Woodstock, Georgia. Joining me are two people who are still part of academia. Dr. Nathan Gilmore, who is a professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Nathan, have you quit yet? No, not yet. I, uh, I actually just had a very good class session, so uh, I'm, I'm hanging in there. Fair enough. Also joining us, uh, Nathan. Oh, man. It's, a, it's apparently one of those days. David Grubbs, who is a <laughs> assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. Yep, that's me. Da- you haven't decided to change your name to David or to Nathan? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> man. My middle name is Nathaniel. So, oh. so. Did, I, did I know that? Nathan, what's your middle name? Uh, it's Patrick. I, hmm. I kind of wish it were Farmer at this point, but... that we would have been like some kind of like weird name venn diagram the symbiote (laughs) i still think you should have named your children after us but hey what do you well you know uh before we get started what is new on the network this week we have a new uh sectarian review on the tarkovsky film is it solaris or solaris i've always said solaris but what do i know all right solaris that's what we'll run with uh, we'll also have a, a new Profiles interview uh, with Coyle Neal interviewing Gavin Ortland. Uh, anything else, guys, that you can think of? Oh, uh, core curriculum. Michael, you can speak words. Say something about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. the episode last week was Book 7, which is the big one about Plato's Cave, and Book 8 will be coming out tomorrow. I thought you were doing your Kid Rock impersonation. <laughs> There's a timely cultural reference. Yeah, and see, Michael, I I would have gone rubber biscuit, so I'd actually be a couple decades further back. Huh. Huh. All right. Well, our topic today is sentimentality, and uh, I'm a get it, and I'm going to see if I can get you guys to be a get it, too, and see if we can figure out what it is uh, to be again. So I want to start with a definition that comes from the late uh, philosopher Roger Scruton, your close personal friend, Nathan. I, I wish, but thank you. This is from his book, An Intelligent Person's Guide to Modern Culture, which is the only thing I've read by Roger Scruton, but I really liked it. So he says, sentimentality, like fantasy, is at war with reality. It consumes our finite emotional energies in self-regarding ways and numbs us to the world of other people. It atrophies our sympathies by guiding them into worn and easy channels, and so destroys not only our ability to feel, but also our ability to bring help where help is needed and to take risks on behalf of higher things. It may seem to project and endorse a vision of those higher things, to take on itself some of the ennobling function, which is the imagination's proper task. But the appearance is an illusion. 
The object of sentimental emotion is in fact dragged down by the feeling which makes use of it, made grubby, not grubsy, grubby and tawdry in the game of emotional exchange. Nathan, is that a good working definition of sentimentality? Well, I, so first of all, I mean, on its own terms, I'm tempted to accuse it of emotivism, uh, where, you know, sentimentality is a noun that names uh, phenomena in the world of art and ethics that I disapprove of. Okay. However, I, I cheated a little bit. Uh, because I know that Scruton was a great reader and a great admirer of Immanuel Kant, uh, I, I tried to read it through the lens of the critique of judgment. And I think with that, it makes a little bit more sense of it. Because what I think he might be getting at, being a Kantian himself, uh, is that you know, without, a, without something artistic there, right? Or without something ethical there. Art always being rooted in... Uh, or all, art always being characterized by a disinterested admiration, uh, the ethical always characterized by a moral freedom, uh, if it is too heavily weighted towards emotion, uh, then the emotion itself becomes the end of it, uh, and therefore uh, you know, it keeps us from the disinterested gaze upon the aesthetic object or upon the free and dutiful uh, discharge of moral responsibility. Now, like I said, I mean, I think that I can responsibly do that because in several places in Scruton's books, uh, and I feel like in the, the interview I did with him, you know, he, he refers to Immanuel Kant as the greatest moral philosopher, the most important philosopher for the moral task, uh, or for the modern task, pardon me, of thinking philosophically. So, you know, that, that strikes me as, you know, uh, a good way to read it. So, I mean, with Immanuel Kant in the background, I think I can see that, you know, there has to be something um, beyond emotion or in addition to emotion. Uh, and that makes a fair bit of sense to me. Uh, I, David, I mean, what do you think about Scruton's definition? Initially, I found it inscrutable. Ugh. I'm so sorry. Ugh. I'm sick in my own personal defense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have a stomach virus, and if that joke doesn't make you want to puke, I don't know what will. <laughs> Maybe I'm just projecting vomit. Oh. <laughs> okay, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Enough with the emetic humor. <laughs> I like the, uh, the, the last sentence I especially like. The object of sentimental emotion is in fact dragged down by the feeling which makes use of it made grubby and tawdry in the game of emotional exchange. I actually like, I, 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 that was probably my favorite sentence uh, in the paragraph, because that was the point at which um, I, I, I felt I could appreciate why it was uh, just what's bad, what, what's necessarily bad about it. Now he says a number of negative things about sentimentality in that paragraph, but that in particular, um, anchoring it in the, the way in which an emotion, an, an, uh, an interaction with whatever it is um, that is centered in the emotional, uh, you know, the emotional burst that you get from that interaction. Um, the way in which it dis uh, that it disrespects the thing that it is, even when what you seek from it is a 
positive emotion. Right. Is uh, that 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 I think uh, made made a lot of a lot of sense to me, and that that was one of the I guess one of the sense that I followed in you know uh, uh, the questions um, that you're steering us toward in this conversation, Michael. Um, I I am not well read in aesthetics or philosophy or many of the things that uh, that this. I, I didn't do the reading for this episode, is what I'm saying. Um, well, there was no reading for this episode, just so our <laughs> listeners know. Well, okay. My life did not constitute the background for this in the way that y'all's did. Um, but that particular idea of of respect um, is is something that 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 seemed really useful to me. I, I think that last sentence is key too, David. The the idea that sentimentality pretends to be about the object, but really it's about the subject and the object is kind of the uh, inciting incident for the, for the sentimentality rather than the, yeah. um, rather than the uh, object, I guess is I was trying to avoid using that word again, but there you go. <laughs> so Nathan, so, what were you going to say? I, I was going to ask Michael, I mean, do you think that this is a Kantian claim the way that I read it? Or do you think I'm off target with that? Well, I don't like you saying that because I genuinely hate Kant's aesthetics and I like this definition of sentimentality. <laughs> and so if, if, if this definition of sentimentality requires me to adopt Kantian aesthetics, I'm going to have to either rethink my stance on Kant or, uh, or rethink my stance on sentimentality. But I, certainly in terms of Scruton's own intellectual background, it, 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 I, th- I think it's a completely valid move to attach it to Kant. Yeah, because I, I, like I said, I mean, when I try to read it without attaching it to Kant, it seems like what McIntyre calls emotivism. Uh, He's you just know. using this word to describe things he doesn't well, like. Well, yeah, yeah. And in fact, I mean, you know, I, I can't see any content beyond the move of disapproval. You know, if I call something sentimentality, uh, you know, the content of that claim is I disapprove of this artifact. Uh at the very least, you would have to say that you disapprove on it on these particular grounds. It's not just just not just blanket disapproval because something can be bad without being sentimental. Right, but if <laughs> uh, unless you are going to say that it is bad entirely to be moved emotionally by art, then you have to have some content that distinguishes being moved by art from sentimentality as a species within that genus. Does that make some sense? Yes, it does. Because really what we're talking about here, we're going to talk about sentimentality in individual works of art in just a moment. But really, I think what Scruton is getting at is, um, is a, it's a critique of a person's reaction to something and, and perhaps a critique of the work of art that, that is set up to prompt that reaction. Right, right. And, you know, as I said, I mean, I, the, the only uh, content there, I guess, no, not the only content, the only formal criterion that I could reach for to attach to that. And again, I'll, I'll go ahead and note that I haven't read an intelligent person's guide to modern culture. So there might be more conversation about this. I, I think that's why I reached for critique of judgment. What would you guys add to that definition? Especially you, Nathan, since you seem to disapprove of it. Well, I don't know that I disapprove of it. I just don't know that I understand it. Uh, okay. So again, I mean, you know, like I said, if you attach it to, uh, you know, a Kantian critique of 
you know, a apprehending art in terms of attractions and revulsions, then this makes some sense because, you know, it makes room for that disinterested core. And then incidentally, you know, listeners, I don't know how much this is inside baseball for you, but I mean, Kant, as I read him, and Michael, if you disagree with this, by all means, chime in. As I read Kant, I don't think that he discounts emotional reactions to pieces of art, but he, he does insist that there has to be something in addition to and beyond the emotional reaction, and that's what I think he is referring to when he talks about the dis- in, disinterested contemplation, uh, uh-huh. because you know if it is purely uh, a psychological reaction that constitutes art, then it becomes an entirely subjective matter whereas he wants to insist that it is a relationship between subject and object that makes aesthetic experience intelligible is that i I would i would go so far as to say in my reading of kant that that he he's fine with your emotional reactions but thinks they're kind of beside the point well they're not beside the point for the human experience but for calling something art or not art Right. That's the criteria. It's, it's akin to it's akin to the uh, your emotional actions are akin to the uh, filigrees on the frame of a painting, I think, is the actual analogy he uses in critique. of. Oh, OK, work. OK. I don't remember that, but I believe you. David, what would you say? How would you define sentimentality? I only I, I only ever think of things in analogies. So I, I've been trying to come up with an analogy. And uh, the closest thing that I come, could come to was flavor. Uh, so the flavor of sweetness um, signals to the human body the presence of a one of a set of carbohydrates called sugars. All right. Um, they give the body a quick hit of energy. All right. As such the body in nature quite likes them, right? Um, if we were sort of roaming along the veldt, hunting and gathering, um, something that's sweet is something that we would seek out uh, as, as a, a very useful uh, source of nutrition, right? So it's not as if the subjective experience of the sweetness has nothing to do with the goodness with the good for me-ness of of that particular thing um but when the flavor itself just the experience of the flavor becomes the thing sought for then it's you know then then we're in junk food territory then we are right then you're we, eating a pixie stick yes um or we're eating things that are flavored like things that we like to eat, but are not themselves the things that we like to eat. Uh, to, to the extent, right, that if you eat too many watermelon Jolly Ranchers, you might actually prefer the, the false taste of watermelon to the real thing. Maybe not a good example because I hate watermelon, but... <laughs> well, I, I like I like watermelon, and I've always wondered what it is that, a, that watermelon candy tastes like. Because it's not, not watermelon. watermelon. Like, it's not a bad taste, but that's not what it is. Um, and 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 you know there there are other things you know you know chips that are flavored like things, and then things that aren't chips that are flavored like chips. And um, in our <laughs> in our pursuit of the guiltless entertainment eating that is junk food, we're always 
searching for, you know, ever more, I guess, nutritionally neutral, <laughs> as in, I guess, not weight gaining ways to get the flavors we like without, you know, altering our BMI and having to take up exercise to do it. I, I just want to note for a moment how close Grubbs was there for a second to a Jerry Seinfeld routine. <laughs> there's things that aren't chips that are flavored like chips, but there's things that aren't chips that are flavored like chips. I, I just don't understand. <laughs> well, you know, observing the world, I find certain ironies that need to be mulled over. Anyway, so sentimentality, um, I, 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 what I'm understanding this, uh, this to be is that sentimentality is 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 seeking the flavor, um, seeking the flavor without um, the thing that the thing that the flavor was was meant to point us towards, mm-hmm. and that is unhealthy nutritionally, and also it's bad for your soul too. In this analogy, yeah, and I. I- I think you're you're actually coming close to my understanding of sentimentality, and I'll just go ahead and tell our listeners. I wrote an article that was published in America Magazine last fall called Against Sentimentality. I had to actually pull the magazine out here and look at the title because they changed it on me. My title was Sentimentality and Abstraction because I think I think sentimentality is heavily tied to abstraction in the sense that it gives you the illusion of presence without there being any actual presence. That's presence with a C-E, not the sort of thing you get at Christmas. Uh, So I'm just going to quote myself like a real jackass. Uh, Sentimentality looks like art, but it does not actually do any of these things. It doesn't actually reveal anything to us. The sentimental work of pseudo-art fails to become a presence and remains an inert object, a mere thing. I cannot encounter it because encounter requires presence, and yet it can move me and can in that way feel quite powerful. Emotion, I should say, is frequently part of the revelation of real art. We are quite rightly moved when our world is open up for us, but emotion can exist without revelation, an emotion that I can only call false, and this is sentimentality. And then I compare it, and I'm still pretty proud of this, I compare it to the way that teenage boys sometimes quote-unquote fall in love with their female classmates, but really what they're in love with is a projection of themselves, the, the part of themselves that needs to be filled can be filled by this girl and this girl alone, and then... Uh, a year and a half later, we move on to a different girl who magically is now the only one who can fill that space. I think sentimentality works that way, too. It feels the object you're trying to to feel about feels essential to you, and yet it's completely interchangeable because your own emotion is the thing that matters. Is that fair? You guys can critique yeah. my article. That's fine. Well, I'll just say I... <laughs> I, I have worked a little bit with Hegel, so a lot of the claims you made in the article were I wasn't necessarily disagreeing with them. I was just having phenomenology of Geist flashbacks. Ugh. Now you're going to be throwing up. <laughs> yeah, I, I, liked, I liked your high school guy crushing analogy, Michael. Um, Thank you. Especially since uh, for a class uh, I was... Uh, re- very, very recently reviewed uh, the chunk of uh, Ovid's Metamorphoses where he retells the story of Pygmalion. Right, right. And I remember as an adolescent, you know, burgeoning adolescent, um, reading the story of Pygmalion in the, uh, the Edith Hamilton and thinking, 
Well, that's certainly convenient. And now, <laughs> as an adult, reading it in Ovid, all I had was just horror and loathing. Yeah. Um, it was it was horrifying uh, to see. I, it, yes, I, I, and I think I think adult me definitely sees something that adolescent me did not. Well, um, I would hope so. <laughs> and, and I'll say that I, you know, I, I teach that section of Ovid as well, David. And what always strikes me is just what an atheist text that is when it makes Venus basically approve of it. Yes. I mean, Pygmalion himself has strong reservations and won't even pray it out loud. But Venus says, ah, go ahead. Eh, it's fine. <laughs> I mean, well, yeah, yeah. So, so that's a that's I think another another useful image of I think the danger, uh, the danger of this, um, and the it's it's one thing to treat an object with sentimentality. It's another thing to have an object produced that is designed for that engagement. You might almost say that such an object would be part of mass cult, but we'll uh, we'll just move on from that. <laughs> oh, there, there's a kinship here. There's a kinship. So uh, let's let's move from a general definition to some specific examples. Uh, so I want to go around the horn and just name a few cultural artifacts that seem sentimental or producing of sentimentality to us, and say why that is, and then maybe we can kind of flesh out our definition with these concrete examples. Somebody once told me that abstraction is a is a negative thing. So, Grubbs, let's start with you. <laughs> um, pumpkin spice things. Man, you really are hung up on the flavor uh, well, analogy. I mean, once once I'd thought of it, I thought, oh wait, that's that's exactly what it, the pumpkin spice thing is. That's and this attempt to get a flavor that evokes particular, you know, attachments to, you know, you know, setting uh, to uh, holidays like like Thanksgiving and uh-huh. and seasons like autumn and all the rest of it. And I'm in Houston, <laughs> <laughs> right? What's autumn? <laughs> yeah, like like the you know i've got a li- i've got live oaks in my yard they don't shed their leaves until the new ones come so um now's what i'm raking man but- i'm so glad we moved out of tallahassee 10 years ago <laughs> but yeah pumpkin spice things it's 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 the flavor associated with what in certain regions and in certain contexts is a particular set of you know, associations for, for autumn. And I'm glad you brought that up. I was about to make a joke about you coming out strong against basic girls. And I, I I think, I think that might be worth interrogating (laughs) because sentimental is frequently something that gets, it's an epithet that gets attached to things women enjoy instead of men. And I'm not sure we're the ones to parse that out, but I at least want to acknowledge that there's probably some residual sexism in our choices here about what's sentimental certainly there isn't mine are we going one at a time or is grubs doing his whole list do you do you have more david um well now i was i was going to get at uh i was going to get at one of my own which is um t-shirts having to do with uh 
video games I'm nostalgic about. Well, that's mail, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but before you go on, David, yeah. I should point out, before you start attacking nostalgia, I actually have an article defending nostalgia that'll probably be out in uh, Front Porch Republic by the time this episode airs. So uh, who knows? We might we might get into it this time instead of me and Nathan. <laughs> well, I have a great deal of nostalgia for The Legend of Zelda. Um, uh, for The original, right? The 8-bit? Oh, no, no, no. The the uh, Super NES one. Oh yeah, yeah. Link to the Past. Link to the Past is that's like, my Legend of Zelda too. Yeah. Um. The the original one. I never beat it. I never could. It was like it's still my Everest. I don't um, know how anybody did it without maps. Yeah. Oh, I but, did. But Link to the Past, I beat it, and like I know what I I know what it is to achieve the Triforce. Um. <laughs> and now you know, forty some odd me can get a t-shirt with the triforce on it and like i didn't replay the game i didn't earn that feeling again um all i did was you know get a little dopamine hit from uh zelda cool but arguably you did earn it to begin with in the sense that you spend 150 hours playing that video game right Oh yeah. I mean that's a that's a real experience you had. I, I don't I don't know if that means you should buy a shirt about it. But the the the, the thing I'm thinking of is when Hot Topic sells Ramones t-shirts and kids who have never really listened to the Ramones but know that they're cool buy the shirt. I don't know how often that happens. <laughs> it's not like it's hard to find Ramones records, but Yeah. It yeah. seems to me that in some ways you have earned that, David. Okay. Well, may, maybe that maybe that's not a good example, but uh, you know, um, no man in his forties should be wearing yeah. a video game T-shirt to begin with. So I'm not telling you to go do that. But. That's fair. I do have a Flash Gordon T-shirt though. I do wear it without any irony. Um, it was given me by students because I made them watch. Uh, not made them. I let them watch uh, one of the 1930s Flash Gordon serials in, for for class. So, you know, that t-shirt comes out of a very specific, you know, time and place. And maybe somebody manufactured it, you know, in a factory somewhere. Um, but I got that thing in that way, and it's connected to those things. So I don't, I, don't, right. I don't think of it in quite the same way as I do, you know, going to a Target and saying, I still like the Ninja Turtles, I guess. Well, your, fe- your feelings there are probably not so much about the shirt as about the students who gave it to you. Yeah, yeah, but it's all tangled up in there together. Right. Um, Denny's and IHOP, but not your Denny's and IHOP. Like huh? It, okay. Yeah, I don't get if that you, either. <laughs> okay, here, here. if you look at the menus, the menus are very much like, yeah, we're a diner. This is Americana. Look at the things that we've named our dishes. It's a chain, you know, and... It might be a very new location. Like, it's it's not the mom-and-pop greasy spoon that's been there, you know, for four generations or whatever. You know, at, but the the way that the menu presents itself is it wants you to feel that. Mm-hmm. But if it's your Denny's or your IHOP and you've been there long enough that you actually know who's going to be bringing you the coffee and you don't have to order anymore then it's, I, I don't think it's sentimentality anymore. Then it's an actual relationship. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so so that I, that that's that's kind of the way that I've been parsing this. Um, I'm not not trying to look for things that that are meant to be that are made to be engaged sentimentally, um, but it might be possible for for even those very things to be engaged in a way that isn't sentimental. Nathan, what do you got? Well, I, I went with things that are made to be engaged sentimentally. Hi. <laughs> uh, so my first one is uh, Lee Greenwood, proud to be an American. Uh, and if you ever take the time to parse the verses or the chorus of this one, there is no content to it. Uh, there is just a general, <laughs> uh, you know, want to stand up in your seat kind of feeling. Or in my case, want to, you know, make that the time that I go pee. Uh, so I, you know, <laughs> that is the worst song. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, and I don't know how many, uh, baseball games you guys go to, but, uh, the Gwinnett Stripers, which is the minor league team, you know, closest to my house to so the, the ballpark I spend most of my time at in the, uh, summers, uh, have taken to doing the national anthem before the game starts. And then after take me out to the ball game, doing a patriotic song during the seventh inning stretch. Oh, man. Oh, so yeah, Lee Greenwood I've heard a lot of. So uh, that's one of them. Another one, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and say uh, the film, not the novel, because I've not read the novel, Gone with the Wind. Uh, you know, and you know, maybe this is, you know, Michael, uh, the, the feminization of sentimentality you're talking about. But uh, I guess Donald Trump here recently stuck his foot in his mouth praising <laughs> Gone with the Wind, so... I, I think I can make it an anti-Trump rather than an anti-feminine thing. Uh, but, you know, this is, again, uh, this sense that, you know, something grand, once you start describing what makes it grand, you get yourself into trouble, uh, has been lost, it's gone with the wind, and, you know, yada, yada, yada. Uh, you know, again, you know, you talk about that worn and easy channel, that's certainly it. Uh, and then the third one is a, a little bit squirrely just because it is doing sentimentality, winking at you while it's doing sentimentality and then making fun of you for getting emotional. Uh, but it's the film Moulin Rouge, uh, which is oh, man. the most self-referential thing. And yet the music is so well written that I feel stirrings in my innards when I watch it, even though I know what it's doing. It knows that I know. And it's making faces at me as it does it. It still happens. Oh, man. <laughs> All right, Michael, oh, you man. you've got thoughts about this. Fire it in there. Uh, let me defend Gone with the Wind briefly and say that the novel at least is uh, a little more nuanced than the book. It's it's still you know antebellum South propaganda, and I don't want to defend that aspect of it. But the novel makes Scarlett O'Hara into into a less sympathetic character, and thus I think a little less sentimental. Also, the movie stars Olivia De Havilland, and I have a hard time criticizing Olivia De Havilland. Anyway. <laughs> But but yeah, yeah. my uh, all right. Go yeah, ahead, go ahead. But you no, were no, no. You, you were grunting and grousing about Moulin Rouge, though. Yeah. Oh yeah, Moulin Rouge is terrible. Uh, every three or four times a week, I think about that that scene where they're very sincerely just quoting song lyrics with love in the in the in the lyrics. Yes, absolutely. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Almost any pop song with the word love in it is bound to be sentimental. But I'm thinking in particular of Katy Perry's song, Firework. You guys must know that song. Oh, gosh, yeah. 
And Firework is interesting to me because it's 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 a feminist anthem or whatever. It's it's a song <laughs> meant to uplift the listener, but it does so by stripping any kind of meaningful characteristics away from the person whom it's supposedly describing, which is how, how it has to work, right? Because anybody listening to it needs to hear the song rising and say, oh, this is about me. I'm a firework. And, and <laughs> it's interesting to me because Katy Perry comes out of a Christian rock background, as I think is well known by this point. But firework works the same way a lot of worship music works, which is in its vagueness, in its non-specificity, it allows anybody to feel anything. Um, and so uh, I would I would I would point to those two very closely related examples. I I was just waiting to see if one of you was going to defend Katy Perry. Oh no 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 no! I mean I, I and, you, and we we dropped the ball. Sorry, man. Yeah, you, you Olivia you, de Havilland. She's not. You, you, you give me an earworm for the evening, and I thank you for that. But uh, no, I'm not going to defend it. But I mean, it's in my head now. Yeah. Well, let's try to get it out of your head. Uh, philosophically, the word sentimentality is linked with the word sentimentalism, uh, which is a. Uh, a system of ethics developed during the 18th century Scottish Enlightenment. I used to teach Hume's An Inquiry into the Principles of Morality. Is that the name of the book? That sounds about right. When I did, I told my students that this was likely the dominant ethical theory of their peer group, even though I would say the vast majority of people have never made any kind of conscious decision to adopt sentimentalism as an ethical principle. What is sentimentalism? briefly and uh, do you agree with me that it's it's quite widespread today so first of all sentimentalism as a moral theory tends towards the descriptive rather than the prescriptive and that's a substantial difference because uh hume's big complaint is that the prescriptive moral philosophical systems that were available there in the 18th century uh really don't have the uh power to compel anyone actually to do anything moral uh you can parse uh, you know, casuistry, in this case, what is the thing to do? In that case, what is the thing to do? Uh, you can articulate, you know, sort of categorical uh, moral precepts. Uh, you know, never should you do this, always should you do this. But, you know, what David Hume notes is that when people do good things for each other or when people refrain from doing wretched things to each other, uh, it's not usually because they are quoting a moral precept from a moral philosopher, but rather because uh, they feel emotionally disposed not to do terrible things or to do good things. Uh, and, you know, Adam Smith in his book, you know, Theory of Moral Sentiment, picks up on this and runs with it. And, you know, uh, his big thing is once again, you know, bringing up uh, narrative cases of people doing good things, people refraining from doing bad things, and noting that uh, in most of the cases, in most human beings, uh, they're not, you know, even able to articulate a moral theory, and yet they feel that they should or should not do something. Uh, and you're right, Michael, that I mean, this is, uh, you know, part of what makes moral conversations so interesting and so confounding in our moment, because... A lot of the things that used to be the sort of moral uh, base for things uh, now gets critiqued as uh, unhealthy, right? Uh, so, for instance, I mean, when people critique shaming as a public act, 
uh, you know, what they are going after is not necessarily or primarily a moral precept, but the emotional response that a community attempts to, uh, you know, invoke in the person who has done or not done something. And likewise, you know, when we talk about, uh, you know, people being a firework, oh, sorry, uh, you know, what we're dealing with is, again, sort of using, you know, pop music in that case, but also stories, also, you know, motivational posters, also those sorts of things, in order to reshape, uh, you know, the sentimental uh, landscape, if you will, that gives us our morality. So, you know, this is fine as long as it's your side doing it. Uh, but what people have, you know, rightly noted, uh, and, you know, this is my own big critique of sentimentalism as a moral theory, uh, is that if you are a Machiavellian, and there's plenty of those to go around if you look around, uh, you know, you can create moral, in, or boop, back that up, you can create sentimental environments uh, in which, you know, you can get people to do things that, if you hark back to your moral precepts, are really terrible, right? You can get a crowd chanting, lock her up, lock her up. Uh, you can get people to turn as a mob on marginalized people and do violence to them. You can have, you know, a march where you celebrate a magazine that makes fun of Muslims on its cover. Uh, so, I mean, you know, sentimentalism, you know, is a good descriptive account. Uh, you know, to hark back to last week with, you know, Du Bois, it has a lot of descriptive power. Uh, but when you are trying to, uh, you know, talk about ought rather than is, it tends to fall short. Uh, I, I just talked for way too long there, Michael. What else is there to say about sentimentalism? David, do you have any thoughts on this? Oh, man. Um, none that are very, none that are very coate. Um, and yeah, I, I've, I've never really dug into, never had to teach, um, that material. It feels as if it's all up in the way that we talk about these matters. I see what you did there. <laughs> but, uh, it has been so obscured by... Um, the fact that the psychology that we bring to our assessments of ourselves, um, plus a a pervasive sentimental drive in um, the commercial forces of our world, make make it all muddy in a way that I don't know was it was it that muddy when when Hume was writing. Um, it just it just all feels much much muddier now. I I think I mean my critique of Hume and Michael I'll let you follow up on this uh, is not that again he lacks descriptive power, but that the philosophy against which he is responding has a pretense of universality that probably masks a plurality in the world that he actually inhabits. So okay. when you start off with the premise that everyone has a common rational framework from which their morality flows, we are historically contingent beings. That's probably not true, right? So, I mean, you yes. know, when you start with, 
descriptive plurality, I think that you can achieve something like a prescriptive universality. And honestly, I mean, that's, I, I know I'm talking about Kant so much here, Michael, I, I apologize for that. But I think that's what Kant does in Critique of, uh, of Practical Reason. Hey, remember when the line on you is that you hate Kant more than you love Jesus? I want to note that I never said that about myself. That was someone else on Facebook talking about me. Do, do you agree that it's terribly widespread today? So, some um, version of Humean sentimentality? Sentimentalism, excuse me? I, yeah, I definitely think so. David, what do you I, reckon? Um, I... I... I would I would agree. It's certainly the way I think. I mean, the 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 way that uh, so often the mere presence of outrage is taken as um, an indication that one is on is a, is on a firm moral f- footing. Bingo, bingo. Um, but only when it's your side, right? Oh, oh, yeah. Well, the other, the other side, side are monsters or mountebanks. Well, when it's the other side. They switch to Nietzsche, or uh, what Jedediah Purdy calls uh, Prozac morality, where your outrage doesn't tell us anything about the subject at hand. All it tells us about is you. Yes. One of these days we'll do an episode on delicacy, because I'm very interested in the way that somebody being delicate is proof that they're being oppressed if you happen to agree with them, or proof that they're overly fragile if you don't. So, you know, whiteness, masculinity so fragile but also, if, if it's a minority being fragile, the solution is not just to tell them to suck it up. And, you know, the same thing happens when it's a white man. You know, he, he, he will tell the, the minority to suck it up, whereas, you know, he's, he's being rightly injured. Whiteness is disappearing from the world. So I, I'm interested in that whole delicacy outrage thing. Right, right. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, Grubbs is, is pointing to something that, you know, Alistair McIntyre, you're welcome, Danny Anderson, uh, mentions in After Virtue, which is that, you know, when the primary mode of moral discourse becomes the protest, then, you know, you really have gone into an emotivist, as he calls it, sentimentalist, I think is a good synonym for it, mode of thinking, right? I mean, the point is not to... Uh, convince somebody to change her mind the point is to exert pressure by means of public display of outrage mm-hmm. yeah though it's that particular move often is critiqued you know when when the other side does it yeah um, absolutely talking about the prozac morality that's one way to critique it the other way to critique it is to say but on our side we use, we we don't we don't do it that way. What we use is is uplift. Hmm. Which which is also frequently sentimental, right? Yes. Exactly. 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 So that um. So Baby, that, you're a firework. <laughs> and there yeah. it is again. Yeah. So so that you know the well the the neg- the monstrous negativity which is growing from their you know psychological whatevers. Um, that's a bad thing, but we are all about, you know, love. Up, love and uplifting and, and hope and, and other good words like that. David, love trumps hate. Well, I mean, yeah, 
But what I would does like that a mean? cultural moratorium on the use of the word love unless it is accompanied by a 10 page document explaining exactly what love is. Or a shack. <coughs> love shack? No. Okay. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Man. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I think we may have may have started answering the next question, which is, is there a legitimate connection between sentimentalism as a moral system and sentimentality as this cultural thing we're critiquing? Yeah. David, do you have additional thoughts on that? I mean, they just both make emotion um, the central uh, the central thing. Um, but what it's doing in that central position is, is different. Uh, it seems as if I mean, based on based on my understanding of of the discussion so far, sentimentalism is treating rightly attuned emotions as a kind of uh, as a kind of thermostat. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's about right. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas uh, sentimentality, uh, it's it's uh, oh gosh. I, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, okay. Maybe, 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 maybe I need to take that back. Sentimentalism is more a thermometer, and sentimentality is a thermostat. No, I think I've lost. I think I've lost my. Control you have my definitely analogy. lost my ability to follow that okay. uh, analogy. Well, in 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 one of them, it's it's gauging uh, it's gauging something that's in the in, in the environment. I, I think that. Um, sentimentalism still sees a connection between that emotion and something that's real that's outside of you, and the emotion is the way that you get hold of it. Hmm. All right. Okay. Depending Where, on your, depending on the sentimentalist, I think that's probably true. Okay. Whereas in sentimentality, being at the comfortable temperature is just the goal. Hmm. Right. Now, I will say, in defense of sentimentalism, that it does have a certain descriptive power, right? I mean, so the phenomenon where, uh, and you know, whenever I say that I teach philosophical ethics, this is always what I encounter. Well, I know people who are more moral than any philosophy professor ever, and they've never studied the stuff. And I think that that is an appeal to sentimentalism, right? Because they have rightly ordered revulsions and and, and pleasures, right? Uh, They don't have to have the rational vocabulary for it or the technical vocabulary for it to to be a little bit more precise so and and likewise when people are incapable of seeing their own monstrosity a lot of times we can account for it not in terms of you know they have imbibed you know bad german books but rather that they are part of an environment an atmosphere if you will uh in which you know certain things that in philosophical terms, uh, are, you know, out of bounds, become the norm, you know, not because of propositions, but because of atmosphere, right? And I realize that, I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing Jamie Smith here all over the place, but I think that's part of his philosophical project is to say that even if you don't prescribe sentimentalism, sentimentalism still describes not just our own moment, but perhaps especially our moment. But I think you can point to other moments in history as well and point to sentiment rather than theory as driving, 
moral life for most of the population. Well, and, and, and in that case, sentimentalism is kind of a decayed version of virtue ethics. Maybe, yeah, maybe it's yeah. just the description section of virtue ethics. And yeah, yeah, because even Aristotle says, you know, a lot of people live as if, you know, pleasure is the 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 eudaimonic life and, you know, they're basically cattle. <laughs> but all of that requires you to say, you know, your emotions can be wrong, which is something our culture is not very good at doing. Right, right. So, I mean, I, I would make a, you know, a defense of sentimentalism as a sociological description, even as it falls woefully short as a... Uh, philosophical prescription. Well, Nathan, you and I started talking about the last few episodes of The Good Place on episode, I think, 284 of this podcast. Maybe what were we talking about that episode? I don't remember. What's that now? Was that our uh, McDonald episode? That was the second half of the McDonald oh, episode. Oh, very good. Okay, rubs. okay. Carry on. Now that you have had a chance to actually watch the finale, I want to uh, flesh that conversation out, and I'll Go ahead and warn you listeners, we're going to spoil it. If So if for some reason nobody else has spoiled the last episode of The Good Place for you, uh, you might want to skip ahead a few minutes. Grubs, have you, do you know what happens? Uh, yes, because everybody was upset about it, and I've never watched go. a single episode of that show and probably never will. Well, David's going to be very quiet probably during this segment, but that's okay. So you can go throw go up, David. Uh, my problem with the finale is not just that it was ultimately nihilistic, although I, I think it pretty self-evidently was ultimately nihilistic. What really irked me about it was the sheer sentimentality of the nihilism of that episode. Do you agree with me that it was a sentimental nihilism there at the end of The Good Place, Nathan? You know, honestly, that never occurred to me until I got the show notes for this episode. Uh, I kind of stopped with, you know, this is a finale episode in which the sort of narrative moral syllogism is uh you know if you are anthememe i suppose uh is that you know if you have a friend who wants to end himself and you tell him that he shouldn't end himself that makes you selfish yeah you're you're childish for not wanting the people you love to cease existing cease existing by an act of their own right and so i mean honestly that's about as far as i got uh, to say that it was sentimentalism might be true according to Scruton's definition, but honestly, you know, the way that I read his definition, I mean, you know, sentimentalism tends to be a, uh, you know, a, well, I'm going to use his phrase, a worn and easy channel. Uh, whereas I think that most of us, as far as, you know, our, our moral sentiments, uh, have been in an atmosphere where we're told that, you know, bringing your friends back from self-destruction is a good thing. So, I mean, I, I think that, you know, perhaps they were manufacturing, uh, you know, assent, if you will, but I'm not sure that I would call it sentimentalism. And that, that's why I'm interested to hear you, Michael. I mean, why do you call that sentimentality rather than, you know, simply, uh, you know, a, a uh, narrative syllogism? Because we're supposed to believe it's beautiful. It's not just a case for assisted, or not assisted suicide, not, not just a case for suicide. It's a case that suicide is the most beautiful and natural thing. It's the, it's, it's the, the most perfect result of human uh, existence. And we're supposed to find that beautiful. And a lot of people did. How many people did you see calling that 
finale moving. Oh, a mess or, of them. Know. Mess of them. Right. Right. And and I just maybe that's not sentimentality. Maybe it's just false emotion, dangerous emotion. But I, I found the whole thing not just infuriating, but lacrimose. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, Oh, I, yeah, sure. I, I definitely get that side of it. Uh, but like I said, I mean, because I think of sentimentality as tapping into common emotional dispositions for the sake of self-indulgent entertainment, I saw this as a different kind of phenomenon, I guess. It was too sincere to do that, huh? Say more about that, because I think you're onto something. Well, the way we've been talking about sentimentality is, is something manufactured to make you feel things. And I, I don't get the sense that the the producers and writers of The Good Place were trying to sell us anything other than the horrible idea that human life is ultimately best if it's wiped out. Um, so I, I, I think there's a kind of sincerity behind the nihilism there. And, and may, maybe it's just that our society is not yet so far gone that it can look straight at nihilism and say, I choose this. And so they have to build it up with emotion first. But uh, I, I I don't know. I, I was infuriated by that episode. Oh, I mean, I, and you know, listeners, if you've got me on Facebook, you saw me say it made me want to vomit. So, I mean, I, I was not a fan myself. I, I really, I, I think I'm onto something with this notion that we live in a nihilistic society. I, I, I find it more difficult to deny that every day. I think politically, both, both parties are, are steering us toward, toward a world in which nothing matters. Address um, your angry emails to Michael. Yeah, feel, feel free. I don't care. Um, see, there's my nihilism. <laughs> <laughs> um. I think of it a little bit the way people talk about um, exterminating people with mental disabilities. Uh, there's, a, there's a kind of sweetness in the way people talk about that. They'll talk about quality of life and things like that. And, and really, it's covering up for the fact that we are, you know, wiping people out. Even the phrase wiping people out is, is probably putting it too delicately. Flannery O'Connor says, tenderness removed from the source of tenderness, that is from God, uh, always leads to the gas chamber. And I, I think that's that's what the good place is. It's a gas chamber surrounded by tenderness. Right. And, you know, to go back to your earlier point, I think that you can call, you know, the the allegory in that finale, I think you can call it assisted suicide because the Janet character is there at the end saying, you can sit here as long as you want, and then you take the act to end yourself. Right. So, I mean, the, there's definitely a physician allegory in that scene that makes it more of an assisted suicide than what we usually think of as suicide, which is a secretive act. Right. Or something to be mildly ashamed of. But here, again, it's beautiful. It's moving. Right, right. So, I mean, and, you know, And I, you already see that with assisted suicide. People have assisted suicide parties where they go and, and you know, they throw a party just before they kill themselves. Right, right. It's a little like divorce parties. I don't know. If, I don't know how often those happen, but I remember Jack White threw a big divorce party. He and divorce the woman parties. He was divorcing. Divorce party. I have never heard of a divorce party. I don't know if they've really caught on, but Jack White from the White Stripes <laughs> definitely definitely had one, and I think it's the same impulse. It's something horrible that we're dressing up as something beautiful. Yeah, maybe, and yeah. maybe that's not sentimentality, but it's it's some sort of false use of emotion. 
No, I'm, and I've seen analogous phenomena, Michael. I mean, I, you know, unfortunately, I'm getting old enough that I'm seeing my for, former students who are in their late 20s and 30s starting to get divorced. Uh-huh. And the response a lot of times when, you know, they kind of, you know, announce it on social media is to say, you know, congratulations on this new phase of your life. And I, uh, I don't jump in because honestly, I just don't have time to litigate that on social media. I'm, I'm getting too old and my kids are in sports. <laughs> but, also, that's not really shaming. Shaming the person is probably not going to help anything anyway. Well, and yeah, that's the thing. I would be disagreeing with the idea and sympathizing with the person, but I know that's exactly how it would come across, Michael. Yeah, it would. So, I mean, if you if you had a conversation with them, I think it would be different. But right, right. <sighs> I, yeah, I don't. I don't know how many people who listen to this show are inclined to defend the good place. I, I really don't have a sense of that. I will say I've seen very few Christians latch onto it. I was sure I was going to see a bunch of um, a bunch of Christians say, "Oh, what a beautiful vision of the afterlife." But really, so far the people you haven't so seen far, any the, liberal Protestants. I've seen, a f- I've seen a few, but it's been fewer than I expected. Okay, because I've got a mess of them. Oh, well, maybe I just don't follow the right people. I'm glad to say. Or maybe I follow the wrong people. Either way. Either way. Well, we're running out of time here, and we have largely been using sentimentality as a punching bag. So I want to end by trying to figure out if there's a defense to be made of it. David, is there an appropriate and helpful use we could put sentimentality to? I mean, like all, like many of our baser instincts, um, they can sometimes result in something useful to our fellow creatures, even when they don't make us better, (laughs) or generate those helpful actions, um, you know, in, in, in a way that comes from a proper valuing of, of even of that which might benefit from the action, um, I'm thinking of, gosh, I'm going to be a monster person. I'll go for it. Um, So (laughs) uh, I know that this is something uh, that that still actively happens, but I, I just don't see as many commercials about it. Um, as as I did growing up, but uh, sponsoring a child in need in another country. I do that. Yes. Okay. So I think that there is a way in which that can simply be a sentimental act, especially if you aren't seeking any sort of contact following up in no way, having no curiosity about what happens afterwards, but just sort of putting it on auto-debit and saying, well, I have helped a, 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 I have helped a person in need somewhere else. All right, that could be a simply sentimental act. Uh-huh. But if there's somebody at the end of that chain who got helped, I mean, they got helped. <laughs> You, you know, and World Vision, I, I don't know, I don't know about other, um, other co- companies, but World Vision is the one I use. And they encourage you to write letters to the child and they yes. have the child write letters back to you and things mm-hmm. like that so in, in such a way that I think maintains the concreteness of that relationship yes. as opposed to That's making good. it a That's sentimental good. abstraction. The best organizations 
who make those kinds of relationships possible encourage that real encounter with the other person's presence. Um, that makes it something more than just an I'm a good person dopamine hit. Um, responding with pity to pictures that make you feel sad. Um, the, the best organizations facilitate that. But I'm sure that there's still a lot of people who never actually pursue that more legitimate um, and and you know soul bettering act, um, but instead uh, are are content at the level of I have done a good thing for someone who might or might not be the person who posed for the picture on the poster. Oh, I don't like to think about that. Hey, but you know what? Even if they're not doing it for the right reasons, at least at least in theory, at least the kids getting the thirty nine dollars a month. You know. Right. I mean, that, that, that's, that's what I'm saying is, you know, in that case, you know, there, there might be things that we do out of sentimentality that nonetheless have a, a positive result um, in the life of a person or even of society. Um, sure. You know, I, you know, I, I, I imagine there, there are people who don't transgress social, ethical, moral boundaries for reasons that might have more to do with sentimentality than they do with some kind of owning of their uh, of, of their own moral stance in the world. Um, in the sense that their action do not, does not result in the damage to others that the transgression might produce, then that's a net positive. Um, but I think what one of the things that we're concerned about when we talk about sentimentality is not necessarily... While earlier we, I talked about the, the way that... Uh, I focused on the, the, the Roger Scruton quote that talked about the disrespect of sentimental, sentimentalism to the object of the emotion, right? Um, but really, if I... I don't know. If I put the Mona Lisa on a mouse pad, I haven't hurt the Mona Lisa. Right? I, I have degraded my ability to receive through that real object what is there. Right? Uh, in that sentimentalism, I've hurt myself. Right? So... Um, I, I think it's possible to do something that doesn't make me a better person, <laughs> but might result in an act that does make someone else's life better. That doesn't mean that I scored some kind of moral point. It just means that, you know, things are complicated. I don't know. Is that clear at all? I think so. Yeah, I mean, yeah, David, it reminds me of the discussion in the Nick and Making Ethics about, you know, uh, we can say that an act was a good action, but it is not as praiseworthy as a good action for the right reasons. There you go. And I think that, you know, I mean, your, your examples there and your, and your description of it are, are hitting on that distinction pretty nicely. Well, um, that certainly does not conclude any full discussion of sentimentality, but at least gives 
hopefully our listeners a place to start to think about it. And um, maybe they'll send us some emails telling us how wrong we were about the good place or gone with the wind or Katy Perry's firework. God bless the USA or any of the other things we insulted over the course of this episode. Our email address <laughs> is thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You know, we haven't gotten many emails lately, and I don't know if that's because people don't use email anymore or because nobody listens to this show anymore. Um, but we'd love to hear from you. So if you have thoughts, do send them along to us. Our website is christianhumanist.org. Uh, who's up next week? David, what are we talking about? That'd be me. I have a couple of uh, a couple of things that I'm thinking about, but right now the 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 strongest thing that I'm considering uh, is a text by uh, Irenaeus of Lyon called the Demonstration of the Apostolic Preaching. It's, All right. Yeah. You always take us back to these old books. Hey, you know, it's my job, man. Well, um, you can tune in next week to hear that episode, or you can tune into one of the. Uh, uh, many other shows on the Christian Humanist Radio Network, all of which are available at our website, christianhumanist.org. We are a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Until next week, for David Grubbs and Nathan Gilmore, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. <laughs>